step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hello and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig and we're delighted to have you. My guest today is Michael Soberman. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm so happy that you're doing this interview. I really am. As am I. We've, do, we've known each other for many, many years. Yes. Um, we're probably like tier two or tier three friends. We don't hang out. We don't call each other. In fact, I haven't seen you in years. <laughs> Except when you come hang out at the, at the baseball park and I happen to be playing. Yeah, yeah. or, yeah. or I need something. That's right. <laughs> but uh, we do travel in the same circles. As yes. an example, our dear friend Ellie Rubenstein. Yes. And uh, I uh, am always being very impressed with the work that you do. Really. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. you've done some magnificent stuff in life. You have a good body of work so far. Well, I appreciate that. And maybe you should be interviewing my parents after this so they can I would. understand what a good body of work I actually I, I have. I would. Do they have Yiddish accents? They do not. Could they, they put not. one on? <laughs> well, it was interesting because when I was younger, yeah. you know, as I got older, I was always, you know, wondering when I would get my accent because every <laughs> old person I knew had an accent. So I just figured it was a transition through life. Can, can you do a Yiddish accent? I do a terrible accent. Let, let me hear. Let me hear. Uh, I... I I, Come bring me the ball, I, you little bastard! Listen, the theater, uh, theater is not uh, one of my strong. Anything, suits in nothing, accents. no poetry. Uh, you remember? Nothing. No. Nothing. Did you write your wife poetry when you were dating? I, I never have written poetry for my wife or anybody else. How did you propose to her? Down on the knee? No, no. It was uh, you know I got married sort of later in life. I was uh, in my late thirties, so at that point, getting down on one knee, you know, might mean that I might not get back up again. Right, right, right. You'd still so be down there. It was it was sort of preordained. I mean, everyone knew what was going to happen because um, my wife came with a diamond, not the Plotnik diamond. I know the came, joke. She came with a diamond. No, she actually did. Um, so her mother had to give me the diamond, and once she gave me the diamond, then everybody knew that you know I wasn't going to abscond with it. So uh, the proposal was imminent. And so what I did is we have a cottage uh, up in uh, on Rice Lake, sort of halfway between Port Hope and and Peterborough. And while we were building it, we sort of built it, my father and, and brother and I, with some help from others. And um, when I was working in the small Jewish communities, one of the communities I worked with was Peterborough. So one evening I went up for a speaking engagement, and uh, my wife tagged along with me. And I told her we had to stop at the cottage just yeah. to check on some work that was being done. And so we checked on the cottage, and then I took her downstairs into the room that was our room, because everybody in the family had a room, mm -hmm. um, and sort of placed the, the box with the ring uh, in a sort of corner, oh, wow. and uh, began inspecting the room, and then asked her, oh, what's that over there? And uh, so she went over and opened the box. Of course, there was no ring in it. Uh, at which point she got, I think, a little bit aggravated. A little okay, miffed. Do it already, and the ring was actually in my pocket. So moments after we were engaged, the first people we spent it with were a bunch of random strangers at the synagogue in Peterborough who had decided to come hear me speak about something Jewish. Was that nice, spending it with them? It was great. I mean, you know, the work in the small communities was fantastic yeah. because these were people that really you know, went out of their way 
to create a Jewish quality of life because if they didn't, they just wouldn't have it. Yeah, they would dissipate. And so they were very appreciative when, whenever anyone came in and was able to share with them or learn with them. So that was, you know, some of the most fulfilling uh, work that I did. Unfortunately, most of it flew under the radar because it's not, you know, headline worthy. Uh, you know, studying. No, it's really not. People don't talk about the small communities no. across Canada. But hold off on uh, for a second. But I just a uh, question came to mind. Do you mind sharing a room with your wife, or would you rather have your own room? In like, like you talked about, everybody has a room in the cottage, and it oh. occurred to me like I'm single. Yeah. So I have my own room, and when my son's not here, I have my own place. I'm kind of that's my DNA. It's good for me. If I got married, I think I'd probably. Have a separate room or even separate house. How so are you I, okay I sharing say, a room? I would say I devote a disproportionate amount of my time and energy to creating situations where I can actually be alone. Uh, um, yeah. You know, I work in a, in a profession that is you know highly social. I'm always on. I always say that I'm an extrovert who's aspiring to be an introvert. So, <laughs> That's good. Uh, I like you that. Know, thankfully, I spend a lot of time on airplanes, which most people would say, why would he say thankfully? Right, right. Um, but that's sort of my time where I can watch a movie, do some work, sleep, And there's nowhere eat, to go. And there's nowhere to go. And, and I make it very clear to whoever happens to be my seatmate on a particular flight uh -huh. that I have no interest in engaging right. in them with conversation. Right, right. My body language suggests that. So it's I'm good for a couple of hours. Right, and you become monosyllabic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, hi, how you doing? Where are you yeah. flying to today? So I suppose the... The politically correct answer to the question you asked me was, do I mind sharing a room with my wife? And I would say, of course not. She's, yeah, my, she's wife. my wife. I love spending time with of her. Of course. Um, but on the odd occasion when she's away and I'm home, if I can bar the door so my son doesn't come in, then yes, I enjoy every moment of it. He's he's uh, 11? No. Nine. He's, he's nine years old. Nine. And your daughter's 11? My daughter is 14. Okay. Well, that's close. So let's talk about who you are before we go further into this Absolutely. interview. Michael is a senior educational consultant for the Eye Center for Israel Education and is responsible for the oversight of the Eye Fellow Master's Concentration in Israel Education, a program for master's students at eight Jewish academic institutions. In lay terms, you teach the teachers or the educators about how to teach Israel. Would yes. that be correct? Yes. So, so the Eye Center for Israel Education, which was established 11 years ago, um, was written, and if you sort of think back to the landscape back then, the Jewish community or Jewish communal organizations anyway were pouring tens of millions of dollars into Israel, almost all of it into advocacy. Yeah, right. There right. was this perception that the campuses were on fire and, and that was the major, major battleground for all of our students and we had to train them and equip them to be advocates uh, for, for Israel, um, not so much for Israel education, just for Israel in general. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is that the strategy was largely unsuccessful and it's not surprising because if you take somebody who has no previous relationship with Israel or Israelis and the moment they walk onto a campus, you want to sort of put them in a situation that is hostile, you know, uh, certainly verbally and sometimes physically, to advocate or speak up for something right. that they have no relationship with. They're yes. just going to walk away, um, as, as so many of us would. So we were really charged with creating a field of Israel education. And Israel education, it's not about advocacy, and it's not about Israel studies. It's not even about Israel engagement. Israel education really is the foundation upon which one's relationship with Israel is built. So sort of one of our... Um, you know, major pillars of the way we think and we way about going thing, doing things is, is as follows. The subject of Israel education is, if I asked you that question, yeah. most people would answer it, Israel. Israel. And it's actually not. The subject of Israel education is the learner, is the individual, the subjects, if you put an athlete, the royal subjects. 
Um, and, and the goal of Israel education is to create a deep and meaningful relationship between the individual and the land and people of Israel. Right. Um, so it's not about the content, although content is used to, to bring people in an area that interests them, but it's really about cultivating and building that relationship. Do, do you have a sense that you understand people, that you understand more specifically teachers? Yes. You yes. do? Uh, listen, I'm, I am a teacher. I've taught, uh, taught overseas uh, at the American International, International School in Israel for a year. I was at the Faculty of Education uh, here in Toronto and spent a year uh, doing some teaching. But the large body of my teaching actually comes not in the classroom. Um, it really comes in, you know, what's referred to today as experiential education. You know, I spent 22 years at summer camp um, uh, running Israel experience programs in March of the Living. I was always in the role of, of educating people. And, you know, I have learned over time that, you know, if we're able to make the term educator a little bit more accessible, then people may see themselves in, in different ways because often someone will be in a role and you'll refer to them as an educator and right. they'll sort of I'm, I'm not an educator, I have no educational training. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a saying that says anybody who is in the position to um, influence someone's opinion on a topic is an educator. So that means that my Uber driver could be uh, an educator. So that was my next question, Michael, is I, who, who is a teacher? Is a, is a teacher born that way um, or do they develop into it and would you say that there are many, many great teachers? So I would say, um, you know, and this is my my thoughts on the teaching profession. Uh, one thing you'll notice is there's very few topics that I have no thoughts or strong opinions on. I think, first of all, the, the art of teaching and the art of being an educator is something that's pretty much innate. And somebody who has those skills, you can hone the skills and make yeah. them better. And for somebody who doesn't, it's really difficult to try to train them to do that. So that's the, the first comment. The second comment is, um, for the longest time, and maybe till today, you know, there was this adage that said, those who can do, do, those who can't teach, and those who can't teach, teach phizet. Yeah, it's a silly so adage. It's, it's a really silly adage, but, but it was so ingrained in my mind that probably the major reason why I went to law school, knowing full well that I wanted to be in education, was, was really to challenge myself to say, I could have been a lawyer, but now I'm choosing to be a teacher. Instead of if I'd gone directly the teaching path, there was always this concern in my mind that people say, oh, well, this guy's a teacher because he couldn't really do anything would else. Would you do it again? Go to law school? I would for different reasons. Because? Um, because it was a valuable education. Um, it teaches you sort of a way to think, a way to reason. Um, and it was fascinating, far more fascinating than the practice of law. You know, when I got into practicing law, which I only did for a year doing civil litigation for the Toronto Transit Commission, um, you know, I realized that it wasn't as glamorous as it, as it was on television. And yeah, they the were fulfillment oh, yeah. or lack thereof just became evident to me in a very, very short period of time. Yeah, people are always pissed off at lawyers and lawyers are always pissed off. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then I realized that I would be sort of surrounded by all those people who I went to law school with, most of whom I didn't particularly care for. <laughs> right, right. So you diverged. Yes. Right. So um, I like to uh, start the show, although we're well into it, um, with a little bit of a monologue, which really is a dialogue, because I'm throwing this out to you as I sort of ponder life. A, co a couple of ideas uh, that I've been thinking about. Here, here's a real simple one. A woman came to check my smoke detector, um, and I looked at her, and for a moment, I felt as though she looked back at me, and I'm not sure whether she did or not. She probably did not. Do you ever have that, where you're just convinced that someone is eyeing you as you're eyeing them? 
Yeah, it happens to me on a daily basis. Because you meet people all the time. I meet people all the time, and I, I live sort of in a in in a world of fantasy where you know I'm always creating scenarios in my head of things that are happening or not happening or might happening. Right. I suppose right. that's, that's my right. form of of creativity. So that's what children do, yes. right? I mean, were you convinced you were, you could fly as a kid? Um, I don't know that I could fly. I thought I could run really fast. Like how fast? Like the Flash, of course. Oh, like the Flash. Yeah. Or the Roadrunner. Or the Roadrunner. But uh, but in the end, I was, you know, a guy with blessed with sort of, you know, moderate athletic abilities. And therefore, my speed was moderate as well. <laughs> I had a little black box in my head where I had three wishes. Uh, all I had to do was press a button on that box. And uh, one of the wishes could be I can wish for another million wishes. Right. right. Um I never really used it. There was no need to, but it was there for me. Listen, I would love to have such a thing. Yeah, wouldn't but, we all? But I think, you know, part of it is, and, and, you know, people may say this, but but I actually mean it, is I still don't view myself as an adult. In any light? In, in, in any light. I see other adults, people who are younger than me, who may present like an adult, and a lot of it might be, you know, they're dressed in a suit and they're carrying a briefcase and they seem, you know, very responsible. Um, and I remember when I was, you know, in my 20s, I was teaching uh, in Israel, and my father, uh, on a way to a business trip to Africa, stopped and spent the weekend with me, and I brought him to the school yeah. to show around, and I was walking down the hall, and, you know, some kid called out, Mr. Soberman, and my father turned right. around, and then he realized they were talking to me, right. and I would always be like, no, Mr. Soberman is my dad, like, I'm not Mr., right. you know, I'm So I, wa I walked into the dollar store, and the lovely person behind cash said, thank you so much, sir. And I said to him, I would ask you please not to call me that. Yeah. He said, why? I said, it makes me feel very old. He goes, that's just part of my culture. And I said, I accept that. So this woman comes. She changes my smoke detector. And I was convinced that we had something going there for a moment. Um, likely not. And she left. And I bemoaned the fact. I was deeply, not deeply, but I was saddened the fact that I'd never see her again. Right? So... Do you have that in your life where you've gone to camp? Yes. And you go to camp, you return. How many years were you in Camp Kadima? I was there. I mean, I started late. My father, who was from Halifax and went to the same camp, wanted to send me when I was eight or nine. My siblings and I were kicking and screaming. We're not going to some place in Nova Scotia where we know nobody. We went yeah. to camp at Benebrith, Northland. Spent about four years there. It was a mediocre experience at best. And for you, for my, yeah. Bar Mitzvah, we went to Israel for the summer, and when we came back, my dad said, that's it, you're going to Camp Kadima. And so I went for two years as a camper when I was 14 and 15, and then I uh, did the leadership program at Biloim, Biloim, Israel, and then I came back and worked there for 18 years. And in 1993, you kind of finished your camp. No, no, I was there until 2000. Oh, I was reading yeah. a piece. You, you bemoaned the fact that you went there in 93. I don't know why it said yes. that. Yes, yes. So I was, I was actually reading an excerpt from... Uh, uh, Eton yearbook article that I had written in 1993 when I thought it was okay, my last okay, summer. Okay, okay. So every summer so, you thought it was your last. So my question then is, you've been in environments where you leave and there's a good likelihood you wouldn't see those people again. Yeah. You know, despite the fact that they could work in the kitchen and you, you really didn't see much of them at all, do you miss people whom you barely know? In other words, that you know that, hey, there could have been this possibility of a friendship or something along those lines. So, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, fortunately today with, with social media, it's very easy to find people and to stay in touch with right, people. Right, it is, yes. And, you know, I'm one of those people who when I have a few minutes on my hand, I'll mess around on Facebook and sort of put in a name of someone I haven't seen in a long time or someone I've thought about. Like who? Can you give me an example? Former campers, former staff, former friends. Um, and in many cases, you sort of just reconnect with them. 
and uh, and you realize, wow, this is like so simple. And you know, t- twenty years ago, when someone was gone, they were gone. And and I'll tell you sort of a fascinating story yeah, that's very about true. about sort of a, one of those types of relationships that, that sort of happened because we were in unrelated worlds and. The end of it will sound a bit like a, a Larry David uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm story. Which is fine. <laughs> because there's a great irony to it. So, um, as you know, I travel a lot. I'm on an airplane once a week, uh, at least. Uh, I've achieved super elite status, million mile, like I'm George Clooney, uh, slightly. Uh, Do you like the takeoff? Yeah, I don't mind any Do you part like the of landing? It. I like the landing. I like every part of flying. Do you really? Yes. Yes. Uh, so, you know, people say that George Clooney and I have a lot in common, um, yeah, you know, most movie. notably our rugged good looks. So um, <laughs> I was Chicago, gonna, I was going to say <laughs> Chicago is where I find myself every other week. So um, they have a concierge service because people like me get a concierge service. So about 12 years ago, I was coming back from a conference about two hours away. I was with my whole staff team from here. There were eight of us and we were very early for our flight. So I called the concierge and said, this is who I am. I'm coming. Can I get an earlier flight? And he said, absolutely. I said, but there's one problem. I'm with eight people. They don't have status. He says, no worries. Just when you get to the curb, just call me and I'll come out. So we get to the curb. This guy comes out. It's the first time I met him. His name was Paul. Lovely guy. Yeah. And he moved all of us to an earlier flight, handed us all our boarding passes. Great. So this was the beginning of a friendship. I would see Paul, you know, every couple of weeks when I come, we became actually quite friendly. Um, we had dinner together, uh, we would be in touch, you know, about other matters. I gave him travel advice to, to Israel. He gave me travel advice to other places that he'd been. And we actually developed a very, very nice friendship. Yeah. Um, one time I came with my wife and he actually came in early so he could meet my wife. And when she flew home, he upgraded her to business class and left her a little gift. And it was really... Is your wife cool with all this stuff? Yeah. She goes yeah. with it? She goes with it. Yeah. So about two months ago, I'm scrolling around on Facebook and this guy's feed comes up. And he died. Oh, he died. Like very suddenly, he oh, went into the sorry. hospital for something and things spiraled out of control and, and he died. How old was he? 49. I'm so sorry. So I immediately contact another friend of mine who works at Air Canada there and he tells me what happened and everybody can't believe it and they're heartbroken. And I say to him, you know, he, he wasn't Jewish, so the funeral was not in the next day or two. I said, when is the funeral? He told me, <clears throat> excuse me, he told me it was in <clears throat> about 10 days, I think. So I had happened to be in Chicago that day. So, you know, I did what I would do for any friend. I arrived in Chicago. I told my office I'll be in a few hours late. I rented a car. I drove an hour south of the city to a place called Calumet City, uh, went into the church, uh, was at the viewing, which in and of itself was a new experience for me, um, waited for, for the service. And was Yo, the you service. had never been in a church? Um, not, or not rarely. a funeral, an open casket funeral. Was it Catholic? Um, yes. Yeah, Catholics are the most interesting. Yeah. And... So it was interesting because at the funeral, there were all of his family and friends, all the guys from Air Canada, and that guy who was me. Some Jewish guy. Right, some guy. And so the only guys I knew were the Air Canada guys, yeah. right? So I'm kibitzing with them, schmoozing with them. You know, they, they can't believe that I came, right? Like, oh, this is the nicest thing. You know, I can't believe it. This yeah, yeah. So people great. love so, that stuff at so those wonderful. times. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I didn't even think about it. Of course I'm going to come. Yes. Um, and even if I hadn't been in Chicago, I would have made plans to go. So anyway... Funeral finishes. I go back to my office. I spend a few days working there. I return to the airport and I come up to the counter and the woman there, who I know not well because she's relatively new, says, oh my God, I wasn't at the funeral because I was working. I heard that you came. Everybody is talking about it. Are they really? This is the sweetest thing in the world. That's lovely. And by the way, here's your upgrade to business class, right? And so since then... I didn't think I could get better service than I had with Paul because he was always looking out for me. And now all of a sudden, I'm actually even getting better service because of the fact that I honored him by going to his funeral, which, of course, wasn't my intention. That's where I say it's sort of a, 
a an episode from from Larry David because you know uh, something that was just the right thing to do and something that was actually quite sad actually you know had moments of of, of comedy and humor uh, involved in the story. That's a lovely story. Thank you. You know, we often talk about uh, about these expressions of kindness. You yes. know, little acts of kindness people call them, and uh, I guess indeed that is right. Listen, I always say if you can. Be kind to a person or go out of your way to do something nice for a person, particularly if it really uh, is no, you know, skin off your back, then why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. So, Michael, I was at Wimpy's the other night. You ever go yeah, to Wimpy's? I've been to Wimpy's. What do you order there? I usually get that big flat cheeseburger. I mean, you I get try, the cheeseburger, I right? try to sort of, you know, reduce the number of times I go there, eat that kind of okay. food. But, you know. So, so you're a cultural Jew then. Yes. Okay. Or you're a cheeseburger Jew. <laughs> so, so I go in there and I'm waiting and they weren't serving me. Um, and I'm a regular, so I'm getting a little bit miffed, and I have that sort of ego about me as well. So I went up to the front counter. I said, excuse me, I've been here for a while. I wonder if you could take my order. And the woman was very contrite. In fact, she brought me extra food. I, and, and I thought to myself at that exact moment, it was a moment of maturity because I myself am a child as well. Um, I thought to myself, you know what? This is going to go a lot further if I'm kind to this woman yeah. as opposed to being mean and ornery and a curmudgeon. Um, and, and it, you know those moments of crystal clarity that you had? That was it. Yeah. That was it. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a time where sort of it, it didn't pay off. Um, so I was in New York once. And if you ever try to leave Manhattan at 5 o'clock, it's really hard because that's when the taxi shift changes. Yeah. And it's like, why would you shift at, at 5 o'clock? Right. So I'm flagging down taxis. No, I'm going home. I'm going, this one guy, where are you going? I said, I'm going to LaGuardia. He goes, well, I'm going home. I live near there. So if you want, I can take you to my house and you can take a taxi from there. And I'm said? like, thank you, sir. I don't want to go to your house. So I had heard about this thing called Uber, which I never used before. So right. I said, so I download this Uber app. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I order what I, you know, an Uber car. I got to cross 18 lanes of traffic to get in the car. Which isn't easy in New Which York. isn't easy. There's a guy in the car. I think his name was Gagek or something like that. He didn't speak English really well. And then, you know, airport. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. And I'm, you know, it's late because... So we're going, and I'm not a nervous flyer. I, I don't mind getting there five minutes. When we start driving, and I know Manhattan a bit, and he drives over the bridge into Brooklyn, and then he goes the opposite way of the airport. Yeah. So I'm like, dude, where are you going? The airport's there. He says, no, no, I, I just have to make a stop. And I'm like, no, you can't make a stop. I'm going to miss my flight. And he's like, no, 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 just one stop. So, I, and I'm like getting very agitated. He pulls over. And this other woman gets into the car. Yeah. By this time, I'm screaming at this guy, you right? Were. Like, why are, you, why, why are you stopping the lady? She's sitting there quietly. And then he's, he mumbles something about pool, pool, pool. Yeah. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about a pool now for? <laughs> and the lady says, this is Uber pool. And I said, what is Uber pool? She said, you can choose your own car right. or you can share with people right, to save right. money. And I'm like, why would anyone want to do that? Yeah. But I had chosen Uber pool. So... Now I'm going to miss my flight. So we're driving and he goes, one more stop, one more stop. And I said, look, dude, I will pay you whatever you want. Do not pick up that person. Take me straight to the airport. And he's like, no, I have to pick up the." So now I've missed my flight, right? But they go everywhere. So now I get to trouble. the airport and I am livid, right? I, I, I want to exact revenge on this man. <laughs> so what happens? Ping, your Uber ride is over. Would you like to rate your Uber driver? Yeah. So I said, here is revenge. I, can, I can't give him zero, but I can go from one to five. So I'm about to give him a one. And then I'm like, ah, you know what? It was kind of my fault because right. I didn't know it. Right. This is this guy's livelihood. Why should I give him a one? Good for you. So I give him a five. Good for then you. it comes up, ding, would you like to tip your driver? Yeah. And I'm like, probably I do better than him. So, okay, I'll give him a five buck tip. So the guy who five minutes ago I hated for making me miss my yeah, flight, that's which right. I missed. That's right. I gave him a five star rating that's right. and a $5 tip, right? And I pat myself on the back and said, you're a mensch. You got above it. Okay. 
because it was my first and only Uber ride, yeah. you get an Uber rating, which, by the way, mine now is 4.94, which is pretty good. <laughs> but at up. the time, I checked my Uber rating. I had a one because <laughs> dude gave me a one because really? I was so ab- ab- abusive with him. Did right? he really? Yeah. So maybe mine came after he gave me the one. Wow. But anyway. Do you feel like a one? I do not feel like a one. You don't. You shouldn't. I, I do not feel like no, a one. No, I'm a give 4. You, 4.94. At least. At least. So also, I gave this woman a, a, a substantially a substantial uh, tip because I was thinking the same thing as you. You know, why not? You know, she must feel awful. She clearly does if I can make her life a little yeah. bit better. So you were talking about people that you can get in touch with through Facebook. Yeah. So let me throw out some names at you. Have you been in touch with uh, Deluxe Man? Deluxe Man, I have absolutely been, and he's a very close friend of mine. So Deluxe Man is one of those people whom you went to uh, Camp Kadima yes. with in Nova Scotia, yeah. where Haligonians live. That is correct. And many people think you're a Haligonian. They do. And, and they think that because you actually drop a little hints that you are. I, I, I do. Look, my well, father, why do you do that? My father introduces himself as a, uh, as a poor boy from Nova Scotia. So I'll often introduce myself as the son of a poor boy from Nova Scotia, right? Which is Without true. referencing where I live. So I do it for two reasons. One, I grew up in Toronto. For the first years at my camp, I was the only Torontonian. Yeah. Um, and later in life, till today, most of my close, close friends are guys from camp. Guys from New Brunswick and guys from Hel- uh, Newfoundland and guys Fraggle? from Nova Scotia. Fraggle. Where's he from, Fraggle? Uh, you know who Fraggle is, probably. I do. Uh, his real name is Jonathan Allen. Uh, used to work at Federation. Now he's the executive director of Friends of Canadian, uh, Ben Gurion University. Rockwell. Rockwell, uh, one of my closest friends. Where does he live? He lives in Halifax. Is he a good guy? Great guy. He is, huh? Yeah, he's he's insane, but he but he's a great. great he's guy. nuts. Completely. Let, like, give me an example. Well, so so his real name is Bill. Um, he and I have, and I have often sort of you know talked about doing stand up comedy together. So my first summer at camp. He's Jewish. Yeah, and his name's Bill. His name is Bill. I don't know any Bills. Yeah. So so Bill, um, I walked into the cabin that was for our age group, and because I was the new guy, I got last choice of beds, and there was only one bed available. It was a top bunk over this guy, who apparently nobody wanted to bunk with because yeah. he wasn't the most popular guy. Right. So that's how I meet Bill. So I learn, you know, shortly thereafter that Bill is not sort of in the cool crowd. I get myself into the cool crowd, and for years as a camper, Bill and I are acquaintances, but we're, we're far from friends. And then several years later, Bill comes back on staff, and, and I'm back on staff, and we become uh, quite friendly, uh, you know, till today, where he is certainly one of my closest friends. He was an usher in, in my wedding party. Um, he's got a wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. He's, he's a very funny guy, um, but he's slightly insane. Can you give me an example of what he's done, so which reflects insanity? One, one summer at camp, the farmers in the surrounding areas used um, a certain type of fertilizer that transformed <laughs> the cow's bowel movements that led to there being an inordinate amount of flies in the neighborhood. I'm so, smelling the story already. So I shared a cabin with Bill, and, and the flies were like were everywhere, right? Like it they was were a sport. ubiquitous. Yeah, it was a sport to hit him with the fly swatter. We got this little gun that shot them. And then Bill had this idea. Yeah. Bill said, I'm going to take a sandwich. I'm going to put in peanut butter. I'm going to catch a couple of flies. I'm going to put them in the sandwich. And then I'm going to eat them. And the other flies will see that I eat flies and they'll stay away from me. And they would. And yeah. this was his plan. It was a good right? Thing. So he gave the flies an awful lot of credit for being able to determine he did. that that large man over there is eating my brethren and therefore we should stay away from him. And needless to say, it did not work at all. Well, you know, God created the bugs before he created us. I am well aware of that. So, so, so he, Rockwell was on something special. Yeah. What's up with Squish? Squish. Well, it's funny because Squish is, um, that's also Rockwell. 
Um, he and I had a number of different alter egos throughout our camp here. Oh, so oh. one summer we were Squish and Hobby. He was Squish and I was Hobby. Or was I Squish and he was Hobby. Anyways, it doesn't matter. And the cabin we lived has a huge sign till today inside that says Squish and Hobby's place. What, what made you Squish or Hobby? We would come up with these names just like they would pop into your head. There was no rhyme or reason. And the name just stuck. Like he could be walking across, you know, the bridge. It probably said, he said, hey, Squishy. And I said, what's up, Hobby? And then we said, wow, we like those names. Let's keep it. So they stuck. So they stuck. So are you ever walking in an airport or in an environment somewhere and someone yells out, Sobes? All the time. Yeah, the Sobes time. is the name. Sobes is, is probably. It's your camp name. Yes, it's my camp Does name. Does anyone and, call you that outside yeah, of camp? Yeah, it's, it's extended beyond Does that. Howie Green call you that? Um, Mutual yes, friend of ours? Yes, Howie does call me that. Yeah, anyone who went to camp with me will call me Sobes. They now call my daughter Little Sobes and my son Mini Sobes, Mini Sobes. Uh, you know, at camp. So it's, Mrs. it's well Sobes established. Mrs. Sobes your wife, I guess. Yes. But yeah. uh, one time for a cabaret show, uh, this same guy, Bill and I, uh, put together this act that was uh, called Paolo and Gustavo's Silly Skits. Yeah. And it was like these ridiculous skits that were so ridiculous they were actually funny. And we did them in really bad Brazilian accents because I had met these two guys at a club man named Paolo and Gustavo. So Bill and I, for that summer, became Paolo and Gustavo. And till today, if you go for, if in the right environment, there will be people who will see Bill and I and say, oh, Paolo and Gustavo. <laughs> um, we can't do those accents anymore. And it required a little bit of athleticism because there was a somersault involved in it. We can't do that anymore either. So, so, so you said there are two types of people in the world, those who go to camp and those who do not go to correct. camp. That is correct. And I challenge anyone to find a third category. I was very deeply intrigued by that because I thought there is something there. And... Uh, I remember uh, someone whom we know that was one of the leaders in our community said that there is no experience like the camp experience. Correct. Now, you, you did a speech a few years ago on the camp experience, which you did it on Yom Kippur, actually. Yes. Right. And in it, yeah, you quoted Michael, uh, is it Eisner? Eisner. Oh, I, I, Eisner. Right. Who's a former CEO of Disney. And this is what he writes about camp. OK, feel free to comment. Camp grabs hold of you when you're young, the kind of home you uh, I'm sorry. Camp grabs hold of you when you're young, the kind of home you at once claim as you won, but also share. Share with kids in the cot next to you and share with the venerable staff who've been there longer than you've been alive. It's one of North America's ultimate communal dwellings. I love that because it is a communal yep. dwelling, one which kids will not have otherwise. A shared experience, an anchor of stories that campers, young and old exchange, far from our camps long after we have spent our last night in a cabin. So firstly, we were talking before about uh, your fear of reading in front of people. And I have that too, to some extent. Yeah. 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 Because I mean, people will listen to this and they'll say, I'm not putting the commas in the right place. Um, but I work it through and, and I do do it. But anyways, you're, you're, what's your thought on what Michael had to say? So look, Michael Eisner attributes much of his success in life to the skills and the experiences that he had at camp. Yeah. And, um, you know, clearly I concur. My biggest fear as a parent, biggest fear as a parent, was what if my kids don't like camp? Yeah, you were saying. How can I be the father of kids who don't like camp? Like, it just doesn't work. Fortunately, yeah. both of my kids uh, love camp and, and will be there perhaps even longer than I. Um, my and, dad had that, by the way. I became irreligious, and that must have been and, just and, terrible for him. <laughs> What, what's interesting is, Thank you. <laughs> I, won't, I won't even go there. What's, what's interesting um, is that, you know, camp, I think, represents the ultimate dependent independence, meaning kids are away from their parents. They're with role models who are, you know, more akin to older siblings. 
Um, they're, they enjoy a sense of sort of freedom and being on their own, but it's done so in a controlled environment where they're, where they're safe and secure. They're being watched. So yeah. they really get the best of both worlds. And, and I'll tell you something fascinating that I'm pretty sure you didn't even know. Um, so the whole model for immersive environments, and summer camp is perhaps the best um, example of one. Uh, there are four categories um, that make something an immersive environment. And the four, category, four categories are, one, it's under one central control. There's one controlling body, so the camp director or the camp committee. Two, it's a communal setting. You eat together, you live together, you sleep together, you know, in, in communal dwellings. Um, third is that you have a tightly, uh, a tight schedule where, you know, everything is scheduled and you do A, B, C, and D. And fourth is that you're there for some common purpose. So in this case, it's, you know, establishing, you know, connection to Judaism and Israel. Those are the four um, categories. And they were actually, um, you know, conceived by, by a guy named Goffman. I mean, you can read the it in sociologist? some of literature. Yes. Huh. And, and what Goffman, and the only reason I don't use his first name is because I actually can't remember it. Right. But what Mr. Goffman says is um, the closest cousin to a summer camp environment that has all of these criteria, and this is what he did his study on, was a prison. Oh. So a prison has one central authority, communal living, a tight routine, and you're all there for one purpose, which is rehabilitation. So camp and, and prison are very, very close cousins of one another, which is why if you meet a kid who doesn't like camp, they'll often say, my uh, parents are sending me to prison for the summer. Oh, okay. And I have a friend whose name I will not mention, who did two tours of duty in prison, um, one minimum and one maximum security for mostly white collar crimes. And the second time he was to go back, he called me up and said, I'm going back to camp. Um, you know, because he, he had a positive experience at camp. So the two are very similar, and the only difference really is the purpose right. rehabilitation versus, you know, uh, establishing a strong connection to Judaism in Israel. Did he come out of jail? Is he out? Yes, he is. He is out now. How is he doing? Um, he's, he's doing okay. He's, he's doing, doing okay. okay. Will, he, will he return at some point in his future? I wouldn't be surprised. In other words, that's in him. He just can't it's get out him. of He's that. He's just one of these guys who who wants to sort of you know do things the the easy way. It's only because I love nicknames so much, and yeah. I've always given my best friends, my dear friends, nicknames, um, and and myself as well. So so who was uh, Little Bubs? <laughs> Little Bubs is funny. Little Bubs also <laughs> now today is a very yeah. close friend of mine. When I was sort of first year staff, he was like a, a Gibby. He was like eight or nine years old. Right. And he was like this cute little kid. And, you know, he had big buddies and little buddies, and he was like this amazing little kid from Moncton. And, and you know, over the years, he grew up, and then he was my CIT, and then he came back and worked on staff. Um, and uh, today, he's he's definitely sort of in my tier one of friends, despite the fact that he's probably a decade younger than me. Um, but little Bubs is, is not so little anymore. No, they, they, no. they never end, end yeah. up that way. And Cutley and Meathead, who were they? Curly. Curly. Oh, okay. You have Cudley here, but okay, Curly. So, and so Curly also very close friend of mine. Plays on my baseball team. Uh, his son and my son go to camp together. Uh, Meathead. I I just like the name. I I I still will talk with Meathead, but he's Meathead is not in the inner circle. So, so you wrote about your experience in camp. This place has meant more to me. In fact, it has been the single most consistent thing in my life since 1980. I never dreamed I would fall so deeply in love with this place. And if I had to do it all over again, I would not change a thing. I have lived Kadima for so many years and can, cannot imagine my life without it. I am scared because I'm leaving behind my own personal security blanket, my source of happiness, the place where all my dreams have come true. So that's what you wrote. I commented yes. on that before, yeah. right? Is it Kadima or is it any camp? Look, you know, 
one thing you will, you know, there is fierce loyalty uh, of people to their camps. And, and Absolutely. Camps, my yeah. camp is better than your camp, and, and it's the greatest camp in the world. And, you know, I didn't have the same feeling at Northland. Granted, you know, I was younger when I went there. So I think this is pro- part of that probably relates to camps in general. But I think part of it is is unique to Kadima. Kadima, I've spent a lot of time at other camps, you know, through my work, more as an outsider, but, but still getting a sense of, of the vibe and the culture there. And there is just something about Kadima that is so unique and so special. And and really the generational piece of it is, is in my opinion, the biggest drawing card because, you know, my kids are now friends with the kids of close friends of mine. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example. I think you know uh, Heidi Brown. Yeah. Um, so Heidi Brown's parents are very close friends of my parents. They went to camp together. And Heidi and I are best friends from the time we're 14 years old. And Heidi's daughter and my daughter are best friends from camp. So that whole generational piece, now three generations, is remarkable. And, and they're friends with people who you know where they come from. You know their values. You know what they believe in. Um, and, and that's important because, as you know, as a parent of a child, sometimes your child befriends a kid. Eh, you don't love the parents, but, you know, especially when they're younger, you got to hang out with them, right? And I used to hate sort of hanging out. The kids would play, and I'd be sitting in a room with these parents that I had nothing in common I with. I know, and nothing to say, right? With it, right? Yeah, yeah, so how's so, work? Yeah. yeah, so I said, well, let's make them friends with people who I like, and then it's all good. So how, how, how many people did you have at your daughter's bat mitzvah? Well, my daughter's bat mitzvah was unique. Well, not so unique, but we didn't have it here. Um, we had it in Israel. At so, the wall, at the hotel. Um, well, that was the plan. Which is so, where your bar mitzvah was. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. we, seventeen of us, went as an entourage. My uh, both of my siblings and all their kids, uh, my parents, my in-laws, and our family. We went and did a two-week trip to Israel because, aside from my kids, my brother and sister's kids had never been to Israel before. Okay. Yeah. And my kids were so excited to show them their Israel because they had been there a number of times. Yeah, and they call it their Israel. Yes. So yeah. the plan was to do it at the at Robinson's Arch, uh, at the egalitarian section of the hotel. Um, and God had different plans. It poured, poured rain and was cold that day. So we were to have lunch after at the Anatico house. Um, so we just transformed that in. And it was a beautiful venue right in the middle of Jerusalem. And that's where we had the, the bar mitzvah. And then we did a week later in Tel Aviv, we did sort of a party um, at, at this beautiful place in Yafo. And we probably had 120 people there. And my in-laws were like in shock. They were like, how do you even know so many people? Yeah, in yeah. Israel? So how do you know? So... We have some family there, but most of it were my friends and colleagues. And look, I've been going to Israel four or five times a year for the last 20 years. So you've been there 80 Um, times. Yeah, at least. I have many close friends, many close colleagues. You know, I have a whole infrastructure there. I could pick up my life here, move to Israel tomorrow, and I would not be lonely in terms of having a social circle and and. So, and so when you land in, in, at Ben Gurion Airport and you get off the plane and you walk out, in the old days we used to walk on the tarmac. Yes. We don't do that anymore. Yeah. Do you know exactly where you're going? Do you have a car there? I rent a car. I, I, mean, I know exactly. Easy to so rent a car. Comfortable. Where would you go immediately? Where would you go? Well, if I don't have meetings or something like that, I, you know, there are also two types of people in this world, two types of Jews in this world, Jerusalem Jews and Tel Aviv Jews. Yeah, and I'm definitely knows. a Tel Aviv Jew. Are you? Uh, yes. So you um, like the nightlife? I, not so much. I just like, I don't like going in the ocean, but I like being beside the ocean. Smelling so the salt. I love sitting on a balcony or walking on the beach or having a coffee, you know, underneath an umbrella. Um, and I just like the vibe of Tel Aviv. And Tel Aviv is a very uh, pedestrian, well, 
I shouldn't say pedestrian friendly because you get killed there, but it's a very good walking city. And I let, love let me ask you something. You told me before that you're not much for swimming. So when you look on uh, in that expanse of sea, um, don't you think to yourself, my God, I would just love to wade in, wade in there and go for a swim? Oh, yeah. Listen, and I, and I do. Right. I, I go in for <clears throat> I don't know if it's a swim. Do you actually swim? No, I mean, I, I can swim. You can do the crawl? I can do the front crawl. I can do the backstroke. I can do the side stroke. I think, you know, many of our listeners won't remember, but back in the day, the badges, you know, you had yeah, beginner, the, pre-beginner, junior, right. intermediate, and senior. So I got to senior. Well, I never got bronze and bronze cross. Senior's good. Yeah. But for me, swimming, going in the water is about cooling off and relaxing. It's not about swimming. Laps. So you're going a boat? Will you go on a speedboat? Um, I... Won't go out of my way to go on one. We had a, a family sailboat. Um, as my father and brother love sailing, so we had a sailboat when we were kids. And every summer we used to go on a sailing trip, um, which I didn't enjoy because my yeah. brother sort of got to do everything, and, and my dad decided because I was good in geography, I would be the map guy. So yes. I got to sit, you know, and look at the maps, and it was a very important the cartographer. Yeah, the cartographer going up and down Lake Ontario. <laughs> and then one summer we were sailing across Niagara on the lake. And my dad, I guess, either didn't check or didn't check closely enough the weather forecast. And literally, in the middle of Lake Ontario, there was like a storm and tornadoes. And we were like tossed around to the point where it was less than comfortable. And we finally got to Niagara-on-the-Lake. And my sister, who was at the time probably about 11 or 12, was so traumatized, she refused to go back on the boat. Did she? So the day that we were to leave, my father uh, arranged to transport my sister and I to the bus station in St. Catharines. How did you feel about that? And my sister and I took the bus back to Toronto. Did you talk on the bus? Um, or were you quiet? No, we, we probably talked. Yeah. I probably blamed her for making me have to yeah, do this. Yeah, because I'm blaming her but now. But secretly I was yeah. happy because I didn't like the boat much either. No, I don't either. And I think that was the last time I ever went on the boat. Isn't yeah. that something? And I always use that as my excuse. My dad would be like, oh, you want to go on the boat? And I'm saying, nope, no. I had, last so time you, I went on the boat, I had to take a bus. So you, you will not retire in a schooner. I will not retire. Now, let me ask you, you've been in seven continents by yes. the time you were 36 years old, one of which was Antarctic. Yes. And at some point, you were on a Russian vessel, a uh, merchant vessel, um, and there were 75-foot waves? Yes. Oh, 75-foot well, waves? You, you realize that's eight stories tall. It's, it's interesting. I don't know, 70, I, I say 60. It was six stories high. Now, how do I know that? Yeah, did you measure because it? Because we were on the bridge um, of the ship, Yeah. which was level six. Like, there were six levels to the ship. So we were on the bridge. And it went and over And the that. waves were crashing over top of us. Okay, okay. Um, that was, I would say, one of the most frightening experiences of my life. I, I would be frightened, too. You said the first hour you were convinced you were going to die. Absolutely. Like, literally in your head? Did you say Shema or something? Well, no, I had said that on the Friday night beforehand. Prior, uh, so you figured it would cover for, it. For a different reason. But, um, yeah, it was it was like the movies, right? And it was like, how is this little thing, I mean, it was built for that kind of water, going to take this? And only when we arrived back in Ashwaya after the storm did my friend, who was running the company, admit to me, he said, I was even scared. Is that he what said, he That's said? the roughest I have ever seen it. So, you know, it was so violent that, you know, you didn't have to worry about getting seasick because it was, you know, fear just sort of outruled that. And then my wife will will tell the story with you at some point during the storm when it had subsided a little bit. But and was she still, was your fiance at yes, the time. Yes, was still pretty significant. I decided for reasons I can't fully comprehend that I was going to go into my cabin and I was going to use the bathroom and take a shower. And they said, don't like it's too rough yes and i said listen i studied physics in grade 13 yeah you know i understand you get it so 
I went into the bathroom and I was standing about to take a shower and we hit a wave and I was literally thrown out of the bathroom Naked. across my stateroom um, and and banged my head on like the corner of a table. Oh, did you? I realized this was not the smartest idea. Was so it bleeding? It was bleeding a little bit. So little I got bit. dressed and, and came upstairs, you know, with a compress on my head. And you had a lump on your head. And my wife showed absolutely no sympathy whatsoever. Because she, did? she said, you deserved it. Like, I know you. You wanted to tell people that in the midst of a Force 12 storm, <laughs> you went to the bathroom and took a shower. <laughs> and God enough. had different plans for you. So now you should suffer. I think that's fair enough. I, I totally agree. All right. So listen, you told a brilliant speech in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and there were a lot of Jewish people there from Melbourne. The, th- the thing that I really appreciated a lot was it was a 30-minute speech. You didn't use any notes. Correct. And I'm like that, too. Uh, I uh, I get bogged down by notes. From time to time, if I'm really anxious, because I can get very anxious, um, I don't figure I'm going to make this one through. Um, I'll, I'll write stuff down. It doesn't work. I'm just sort of reading it, and there's nothing special yep. about it. But you're kind of that similar that way. In other words, writing notes does slow you down, right? Yes. So, so what I will do, if I, I mean, it depends. If, if it's a story, then I just tell myself and practice the story over and over and over again. And each time it's slightly different, and that's, that's totally yeah. cool. Um, if it's sort of more substantive in the form of a speech, what I will actually do is I will write it to be not – I won't write it in long form, but I'll write short paragraphs with the points. And then that will help me build it. And then I'll take a second sheet and shorten it more and a third sheet. So by the end, I'll have a piece of paper with 12 words on it. Well, not, not, <clears> for, <throat> your, not for your 2012 camp speech. It was two pages. Yeah, but that, no, that I, that I sent to you. Oh, you actually shortened a, this down. Yeah, I shortened that down. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and then what I will do is, in, and, and this is how you can tell, I'll sort of divulge a trade secret. <clears throat> Thank in you. In any speech that I have given that I may not have been 100% confident that I was going to be able to pull it off without looking at notes. I will always insert somewhere between 50 and 75% of the way through a quote, which must be read. In most cases, I know the quote off by heart. But what I will then do is say, and Michael Eisner is a great one, I'd like to read a quote from Michael Eisner. Nobody would fault anyone for reading a quote. Correct. So I pull out a piece of paper with the quote on it, but it really has my list of here are the 12 things. Oh. So I can read the quote and check if I missed anything, put it back in my pocket. So, so I noticed in Melbourne, you had a piece of paper in your back pocket. Which I never had to use. But that was it. That was, that yeah, was I was yes. wondering what that was. Yes, that was just in case I needed, you know, to, to refresh. Yeah. Um, that's what I would have done. So you do informal education, but what happened? You got a, <laughs> you got a call one day from the Jewish community of Australia? How did that work? So... Um, I would say, you know, and I, and I try, I'm, I'm actually getting a little bit better at being somewhat humble and practicing a little bit at Tsim Tsum. Um, Explain what that is, Tsim Tsum. Tsim Tsum is, it's, it's, from, it's from the Torah, and it's, it's about being humble and, and putting sort of withdrawing you. yourself. Withdrawing yourself, and, you know, the spotlight isn't always on you or doesn't always have to be Are on you. Are you naturally not humble? No, I'm naturally not humble at all. I'm, I'm also not. Yeah, I, you know, I like... And, and crave the spotlight, um, and it's hard for hard, not as hard as it used to be, but it's hard for me to sort of be in the back yeah. and see something succeed, and it not not everyone turn around and say, "Oh my God, you're so wonderful." <laughs> yeah, yeah, well played, exactly. You know? like, Hang on, that was me. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so what happened is, look, there are um, a few areas <clears throat> that I would say I'm considered an 
expert mm. in, and and how is someone considered an expert? Um, their peers recognize them as being an expert. Um, so in the area of Israel education, experiential education, you know, thinking about how do we engage the next generation and wanting to be a part of the Jewish community, yes. I've sort of established myself there as a niche and given, you know, many talks um, about it and, you know, um, content aside, um, because I, I believe strongly in this, this term, which I didn't coin, called edutainment. Um, and I believe that, you know, it's as much about the content as is the way people relate to you. And, you know. You're saying the delivery? Yeah, and people will leave a talk and they'll remember two things. They'll remember if they liked you and if they would come hear you again and if they can remember one thing. And, and it's fascinating. I, so I graduated twice from high school. Um, I did my 12th year of high school at the American International School in Kfar Shemariahu in Israel because my father was on sabbatical for the year. And you went with him, yeah. And I came back here because of grade 13 and I had to do grade 13. So when I graduated in grade 12, the speaker at my graduation was, you know, someone who anyone in the Jewish community knows, David Horowitz, mm -hmm. uh, former editor of the Jerusalem Post, mm -hmm. um, you know, well-known British journalist. And he Erudite. Was, yes, and he was the speaker at my high school graduation. And he said in the speech, and I remember, he said 10 years from now, you will not remember who spoke at your graduation yeah. or what they spoke about. Yeah. So I met him like 15 years later through work, and I said, David, I got to tell you, you were 50% right. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, when you spoke at my high school graduation, you said 10 years from now, I would not remember what you spoke about, and you were correct. I have no idea what you said. Yeah. But I do remember it was you that spoke. So he said, what graduation was this? And I said, the American International School, 1984. He says, how old are you? So I tell him, he goes, I'm like a year older than you. How did I speak at your high school graduation? <laughs> I've never spoken there before. Yes. And I'm like, no, 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 David, journal, like it was you. And he said, no, it wasn't. So I did a bit of research and it was actually a guy named David Shipler, who was a foreign correspondent for the New York Times who spoke there. <laughs> but in my mind, I thought it was David Horowitz. So David uh, Shipler, who was subsequently funny, passed man. away, was right. Because 10 years after, I didn't remember what they spoke about or who it was. Yeah, that's funny. Um, you know, so I, I want people to walk away, you know, one, um, feeling good and that they enjoyed that. And if they think about one thing or remember one thing, which is why in so much of my, my speaking, I tell a story that's, you know, somewhat obscure involving, you know, penguins or a green contact lens case or my son's foreskin that is memorable. And people will be like, oh, I'm, that's the penguin guy, right? And then they'll remember, Peng oh yeah, and they, they can sort of piece the story uh, back together. So that was a long-winded way, way of saying that somebody had recommended me, the Zionist Federation of Australia has a conference every year, a colleague of mine in, in Israel who did a lot of work with them had recommended me. They reached out and said, we'd love for you to come and do a few sessions and to be our keynote speaker. Um, naturally, I said, of course, uh, it was Australia. I had been there once before, but it's a great place. So I went back and uh, it was phenomenal. Do they have great breakfasts? I always love breakfast at conferences. Um, Kiwi. I, I'm not much of a breakfast. Like I... For Are you me, an eater? Are you a foodie? No, I'm definitely not a You're foodie. You're not? No. Why did your mother not put spices in your food? I don't think she put spices she probably in my didn't. food. But Bo I'm, I'm a traditional eater. I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. Do you I'm appreciate not, a fine meal? I, I do, but if I was going to spend my money on something, uh, you know, frivolous or something that brought me joy, uh, expensive meals would not be at the top of okay. my list. Well, what was your son's foreskin? We can't pass that one up. What was his foreskin so, uh, story? Um, my children are five years apart. Um, and so I like to tell people that my wife and I were so incredibly smart yeah. that we spaced them out five years apart because having a five-year-old and an infant is very different than a two-year-old and an infant. Correct. And and, and from the time my daughter was seven, she was like having a third parent around the house. It was it was awesome. 
we, we weren't that planned. We were like every Jewish, you know, couple. Every two years, we're going to have a child. <laughs> um, so we had my daughter, you know, very simply, and and my son was a problem. Um, uh, my wife couldn't get pregnant. We had significant. I don't want to say significant because other people have been more significant. We had some fertility issues. That must be tough. Eh? Um, it was much tougher on my wife um, than it was on me because she had to go through the treatments and it was something, you know, uh, that, that, that really uh, upset her and bothered yes. her. And I'm yes. sure that, that as a woman who cannot conceive feelings of inadequacy. And so, you know, I, I can't, you know, I can sympathize. I can't even empathize with what she was going through. You know, it's, it's weird because when we're young and we're doing a lot of dating, um, inevitably, we're always afraid of making a, a woman pregnant. Yes. Right. And and then when we actually are betrothed and we're with the woman we'll spend our life with, very often that's a problem. Yeah. Right. So so, um, so he's IVF. Right. We went and we did the treatments uh, IVF. And what was amazing about that is so we we did it. We took the eggs. We fertilized them. Put them in. And a week into it, um, we went to see the the fellow we were working with, and he says, "Look, this is." not looking viable. Yeah. All of the signs are not good. Like there's maybe a 5% chance that this is going to happen, but come back in a week and we'll see. And we came back in a week and, and the doctor said, I've never seen this before. Really? Went from 5% to 100%. Like it was amazing. Wow. So so Josh is is, is IVF. Um, so because of all of the complexities involved in conceiving him, we decided we wanted no more surprises. We wanted to know the gender of this boy. Yes. Of, of this kid who was a boy and he we knew he was going to be delivered by c-section because that's how my daughter was delivered so um the good thing about that is when you know the date the kid is going to be born and the gender planning the bris is really easy so we planned the bris like six months in advance we called the, the moil, yeah. and he's like how do you know i said trust me i know who was the moil? um obby diamond yeah he's a good guy yeah. Yeah. so and he'll he'll remember i the went story. to school with obby yeah i told yeah. obby uh, the story so um and it was great because we had two sets of parents that spent their winters in, in Florida so they could book their tickets in advance. And it was great. So everything was scheduled. She was supposed to go. Um, she almost got bumped for a last minute emergency. And I was like, guys, you got to get this in before midnight because yeah, I got no a caterer. Here. I got all this stuff. Everything's ordered. Yeah. So uh, kid is born. Uh, eight days later, we have his bris. And where do we have his bris? We have his bris at the Lipper Green building. That's where I was working. They had just redone the Tamari Conference Hall. We should say that there is a Jewish federation yes. in all major Jewish uh, metropolitan right. cities. There is one in Toronto, and where they are housed is called the Lipa Green Building. The Lipa Green Building. So I decided to do it there um, because there had been no other brisses in that building. And again, I'm like a guy at first. I'm like, I will forever be remembered as the first guy who had his son's bris in the building. And likely the last. And last. Plus, I worked there, so half the people that were coming were there. It was great. So they were there already. We had this bris, everything. Was you know, Frida still working in the Frida kitchen? Frida was still working in the kitchen, yeah. I think. We had this beautiful uh, simcha, and and at the and I was wanted to be as involved in this as I possibly could without actually performing the the Brit itself. So you were the Sunday. So, so I was there, and and I knew everything, and he explained everything. No surprises. Everything is great. And just at the end, he said something that completely caught me off guard. He said, um, "As the father of this boy, you have one more task to perform." And I said, "Yes." And he, you know, motioned for me to put up my hands and. He dropped a little gauze uh, in my hands and said, this is your child's foreskin. Um, as the father, you need to bury it. And I'm like, okay, I've never heard of this before. Yeah, right. right. Um, maybe I just got like a cheap moil who, you know, the other moils <laughs> do it. Like, I'm like, this is crazy. He was crazy. too busy or lazy. This is crazy. So, of course, I'm not one to just say, okay, I got to ask questions. I'm like, okay, is there a time frame in which I need to do this? 
And he said, no, why you would want to hold on to it for longer than you need to, I don't know, but yeah. no. And then I said, and, and what about a place? Is there a certain place? He said, no, you can bury it. I said, because it's January. It's Toronto. There's a foot and a half snow on the ground and frozen ground underneath. That's and a he lot said, of digging. Yeah. He said, do you think we can have this conversation offline? Everyone's very hungry. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine. So uh, we did that. So I took the the, the foreskin home. And well, I made, what did you put it in your pocket? I put it in a, in a Ziploc plastic bag. In your pocket? That, the, yes, that so I probably got your son's got from foreskin in yes. a bag in your pocket. I went home and I made the decision that I was going to bury this foreskin in Israel because I was going a month later. So then I said, okay. Now, what, you, what was your decision you predicated are, on, by the way? Well, you'll understand in a minute. Yeah. So I said, wow. I said, you are one of the most forgetful people in the world. Yeah. So I took the Ziploc plastic bag and I put a little sticker on it that said Joshua's foreskin. And I put it in the only place I knew I would not forget it, my passport. Okay. And I put it in my drawer. <laughs> and a month later, I'm going off to Israel, and I completely forget about this. And, of course, I never check luggage. I'll go an hour before. I'm always that last guy. So I'm racing to the airport. I'm the last guy to check in for Air Canada. I come up to my special counter, and the lady says, passport, sir. And I sort of just toss the passport lightly onto the table at which point the plastic bag slides out with the label facing up and i see her reading it she looks down and i see her reading joshua <laughs> and she looks at me with horror with horror on her face and she said and, and i kid you not this is what she said to me yes she said sir you cannot transport fruit over international borders <laughs> so i look at her and said ma'am not fruit so she said, I, I, I know, I, I just didn't know what else to say. Yeah, under what so would you categorize So she regained it? her composure and she said, I do not believe that you can transport organs over international borders. Yeah. And I said, you are correct. Technically, this is not an organ, but only a very small piece of one that is of absolutely no use to anyone, including the rightful owner. And if you'd like to call him and ask him if he's okay with me taking it, you can do that. She By goes, no, means. what I would like you to do <clears throat> is take it off of my table. I don't want to see it or I don't want to have... So I take it, I put it in my pocket, off to Israel. And it was a short trip. I'm there five days. Yeah. So my Rebbe, I guess, at the time. A Rebbe meaning, is, a, is a rabbi, yeah, a teacher, meaning a my, the, my religious authority at the time was a friend of mine who worked with me, Danny Fine. He was like the most orthodox guy that I knew. Okay. So I'm calling him up like, okay, what, what does the tradition say about this? He says, there's no tradition. He says, the one tradition is if you bury it beside a tall tree, that means your son will grow up and be tall. Nice. <laughs> okay. So I'm like thinking now, because I'm the educator, where can I bury this? What can I do? My, my good friend who, you know, Liz Sikulski, yeah. um, you know, said to me, well, are you going to have this bar mitzvah in Israel? I said, yes, yes, I am. She goes, why don't you bury it there? And I said, yes, I'm going to call the King David Hotel. I'd like to book your venue 13 years from today and please put this in the planter. So back and forth, I'm asking, I'm going out for dinner with friends. And I'm like, hypothetically speaking of them. If you had your son's foreskin in your pocket right now, yeah. where would you bury it? Right. And so finally on the last night, I was at a meeting at the at the Inbal Hotel, formerly the La Rome Hotel, and I'm staying in Mamilla, so I have to walk on King George Street in front of the King David Hotel, and beside it there's a beautiful park, Bloomfield Park, named actually after a Canadian. And I said, okay, this is it. I'm leaving tomorrow. So I hop over the fence in the park. I go to the crest of the hill. There are four trees, one slightly taller than the other three, yes. overlooking both the old city and the new city. And I'm like, this is the spot. So, you know, 1130 at night, there's this strange man digging a little hole. I put in the foreskin beside the tree, which, you know, now becomes the Joshua tree uh, forever known. So uh, fast forward nice. a month later. Nice. Um, I go back. And on Israel's Independence Day, people find any green space they can and they have a barbecue. Yeah. That's the tradition. So I'm walking to my park and underneath my tree, the Joshua tree, there's this, you know, Sephardic family of like 400 people having a, 
uh, a great barbecue. And Unbeknownst part, to them. And part of me was very honored they were under my kid's tree. And part of me was like, look, this is sacred ground. You should not be sitting here. Um, but at the end of the day, why did I do this? I did this because burying his foreskin in Israel represented for my wife and I our hopes and dreams that he will have a deep and intimate connection with the land and the people of Israel. Yes. And figuratively and literally a part of him is there. And it's a story I will tell at his bar mitzvah and again at his wedding and he'll be thoroughly embarrassed, but that's what parents do. And that's sort of a riff off of when I went for my bar mitzvah, um, uh, my father took us up to the Mount of Olives and my father was orphaned by the time he was 17 after which he went to Israel and spent a year as part of the Mahon learning leadership skills and, and working on a kibbutz. Which you said healed him. Yes, uh, you know, helped to sort of heal him. And de facto, that became, you know, a, a family, a communal environment for him. And he said to me and my brother and sister, this is Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people. I sincerely hope that one day you will develop a deep and intimate connection with this land and the people and pass that on to your children. So for me, that very much represented that. When my daughter was three months, I took her to Israel just so I could give her that speech. And I gave her exactly the same speech. She remembers none of it, of course, uh, of giving it to her. So, so having my son's uh, foreskin buried there was, was really significant um, and important for us. And, and he knows. He knows his Joshua tree. I've got pictures. And he'll go, oh, that's my tree. That's, he calls it his tree. Um, and so that's the story. He's of proud of his foreskin. Of my son's uh, a, a lot of people come to Israel, you know, intellectually. Some come through their heart. Your son came through his penis. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very unique. Very unique. I yeah. Mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure he's not the only one, but I think there are very few people in the world today who could point to the exact spot where their foreskin is buried, myself included. Yeah, no, I would say that's accurate. I'm not quite sure what happened to my son's foreskin. I mean, most people think mine's in Halifax, right? When in reality, we know it's not because I wasn't born there. One day I'll drive up to a garage sale. I'll see if for <laughs> sale there or something, you know? Yeah. Um, you're a very unique fellow. You're very experiential, aren't you? Uh, you know, often when people say that you're unique, uh, it's sort of a backhanded not at all, not at all. criticism. Do you feel as though there's meaning, a lot of meaning in your life? Yes. I, I you know, as I've gotten older, I'm, I'm constantly searching for meaning. Yeah. I'm constantly looking for things that are meaningful to me, which would explain why as someone who grew up as a very reformed Jew, a three times a year synagogue Jew, uh, who did not keep kosher, nor did I keep Shabbat, and spirituality, just it just wasn't my jam. Um, and later in life, in a search to have meaning in spirituality, I started, you know, first uh, reciting the Shema on the three days that we read Torah, Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. I like the way you chose it. You yeah. said it was the easiest thing to yes, do. Yes, it was like, what the can most I do? Really yeah. yeah. And then I started doing it every day, and then I decided I wanted to start, or at least try putting on tefillin. So it took me a year to get tefillin. Then it, they sat in my house for a year because I had no idea how to put them on, and then I went back again to Danny Fine. Um, and he taught me how to put on tefillin, and um, until and so then I started putting them on every single day, except uh, Chagim and Yom Tovim, holidays and, and Shabbat, um, when I was home, but I never actually traveled with them. Um, do do and ever, then I, I think you might ask me about that, so I'll, I'll refrain from. So the there's rest this of it. beautiful piece that you wrote. It's called "Why I Put on Tefillin at Auschwitz." Yes. There's a copy for you if you want to grab it right there, please. And essentially, firstly, tefillin is translated to phylacteries. But essentially, uh, Jewish men, and by extension nowadays, many Jewish women, put on these leather boxes on their body, one on their arm and one on their head. And within, inside of those leather boxes, you'll find parchment and you'll find prayers, one of which is Shema Yisroel, which is 
probably the most important piece of liturgy. And it talks about the oneness of God, oneness of people. Anyways, you wrote this piece about putting on tefillin at Auschwitz. So I want to go through it and I want to read it together with you. So let's do paragraph by paragraph. I will start. Excellent. What did you write this for, by the way? I wrote this. I mean, often I'll just write a thought piece because something inspires me. And then I'll determine what I can do with it. So do, you like wrote, write, do you like writing? Yeah. I like writing sort of stories. Um, I, I write some academic stuff as well. Um, but then I later use this as one of my sermons. I do a sermon every year at Congregation Habanim, um, something I've been doing with Ellie for years. So this became the, the topic of one of my sermons. Yeah, that's how I found out about yeah. your penguin story. Yes. Okay. I am not a deeply religious person, but a number of years ago, I decided that I wanted to be a more observant Jew. Last April, which coincided with my 12th visit to Poland as part of the March of the Living, also marked the first time I was accompanied by my tefillin. On a cold, snowy morning in Warsaw, I began my ritual. I was instantly connected to the over 1,000 years of rich Jewish history in Poland and the tragic events that almost put an end to Jewish pe people partaking in Jewish rituals. It was meaningful and therapeutic, but what it meant to me personally had yet to be revealed. Each day in Poland started the same way, until the morning of Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day, and the actual march from Auschwitz to Birkenau. As I prepared to put on my tefillin, I stopped. I decided I'd rather put them on that afternoon at Birkenau. I somehow sensed that I had to be influenced by a series of events which would culminate later that day. I had recently learned the story of Hugo Lowy, a Hungarian Jew who disappeared from Budapest during the war. It took over 50 years for his family to learn that he had been put on a train to Birkenau. Upon arrival, Hugo was ordered to leave his belongings in a pile. He refused, and the small bag he was holding was ripped from his hands by a Nazi soldier. After the Nazi turned away, Hugo retrieved it, but the Nazi saw, and enraged by Hugo's disobedience, beat him to death on the platform. I would walk along the very same platform where Hugo was murdered. What was in that small velvet bag that he gave his life for to defend? His talit and tefillin. It took Hugo's surviving family over half a century to learn that he had died in what Rabbi Lau, the former chief rabbi of Israel, said was the ultimate act of Kedush Hashem, sanctif sanctification of God's name. Several years ago, I noticed a boxcar sitting on the tracks in Birkenau. It had been donated by the Lawi family upon learning of Hugo's fate. It was a memorial to him and all the victims of the Shoah, the Holocaust. At a private dedication ceremony, Hugo's son Frank placed a small velvet bag containing a talit and tefillin inside the boxcar. On Yom HaShoah 2013, Frank Lowy addressed over 10,000 March of the Living participants. I stood in the freezing cold on the snow, covered around, and like everyone else there, listened intently to the story about his father's tremendous sacrifice. As the speech concluded and Hannah Sanish's song, Eli Eli, echoed throughout the camp, I made my way to an empty barrack. I removed my jacket, fleece, sweater, and long sleeve shirt until I stood, stood shivering in a t-shirt so I could put on my tefillin. As I began to wrap my arm, the cold was not an issue. I heard the voices of hundreds of thousands of Jews before me reciting the prayers, and I never felt more connected to who I was as a Jew. It was a moment of tremendous clarity. I realized that I was nothing more and nothing less than another link in the chain of the Jewish people another chapter in an incredible story. I felt a similar solidarity with Hugo Lowy and so many others before me who participated in the same ritual day after day, year after year, until his devotion to that faith 
and his ritual prematurely ended his days on this planet. It was then that I was able to succinctly answer these questions. Why did I put on tefillin at Auschwitz? Because I could. Why do I put on tefillin every day? Because I can. Most Jews today live in free and democratic countries. The conditions of the Holocaust are so far removed from the experience of our generation that it is almost impossible to comprehend the extent to which our people were robbed of every last freedom, of every vestige of human dignity. But today we have freedom and the privilege to practice our Judaism at any time, in any place, in any fashion we choose. We ought to choose to passionately exercise that liberty. Whether it is daily prayer, putting on tefillin, or another tradition, search out that aspect of Judaism that speaks to you. Embrace it and make it part of your life. We owe it to future generations and we owe it to Hugo Lowy and to the millions of others before us who lived and died defending their faith. They entrusted us with the most precious legacy, as I learned on that freezing day, wrapping tefillin around my arm in a barrack in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Very nicely written. And nicely read as well. Thank you. Do you see Hugo Lowy? Do you see him in your head? I have an image of him. What's your, um, what's your image? It, it's interesting because my image of him is still, is, is an older person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I worked in, in, in the Lippa Green building in Toronto, as you mentioned, and there was this, on our floor, from, from the elevator to our office, there were these pictures from this book that we had done for some anniversary of the Jewish community in Toronto. And there was one photo that I was always drawn to every yeah. time I walked by it, and I could never figure out why. And it was a photo of a young guy, uh, you know, big, strong, with a hat holding strapping. a Strapping. Strapping. And he had a, a, a tattoo numbered on his arm. And... I finally realized why I was drawn to it is because I had never seen or met a survivor who was young, mm -hmm. right? I come in contact with them in the 70s and 80s. So in my mind, survivors were always old people. Yes, old people. I never envisioned them or imagined what they were like young. And this image gave me one image into, wow, this is what a survivor looked like before they got old. Do you ever ask yourself the question of should he have gone back for his tefillin bag? What, when, when we say that he died for it, what does that mean? Look, I think that, you know, and it's it's a question, you know, what would you go back for, right? right? What are yeah. your most precious items? Yeah. I think as, as fathers, we could agree that if, you know, we went back for our child, um, understanding the risks involved in that, um, that's a risk that we would take, and, and nobody would, would fault us for that. Correct. Um, and then, you know, the, the rest of the area gets gray. You know, what things would you be prepared to die for? And in the case of Hugo Lowy and, and so many people, um, you know, it's not something I can, I can relate to because, as I said, I'm not spiritual on that level. But for them, be it Torah or be it the tefillin and, you know, of who they are and their spirituality, that represented a loss of his spirituality. And clearly he said, I'm prepared to risk my life so as not to lose my connection to spirituality. Because without that, I, I cannot live or I cannot live in a way um, that, that I'm accustomed to and want to live. So you've been in Poland over a dozen times. Like 25 times. Um, you were Vice President, Canada-Israel Experience and Next Generation Initiatives. Jewish Federation of Canada, Director of National Initiatives for the Next Generation. Essentially, you were one of the guys who was responsible for getting a lot of kids 
uh, to Poland to visit Auschwitz-Birkenau yes. and ultimately end up in Israel. That's called March of the yeah. Living. My question more so is directed at you. Um, I don't, I don't want to go to Poland and I don't want to see the death camps. I don't have to. I was brought up in a family that was highly, highly empathetic. Um, I think one of the questions you asked in your speech in Australia was, do you, do we, do we need to go to Auschwitz? Your response was most of us or many of us do. We have an obligation to, to, to go there and talk about what we've seen. Okay. In my mind, based on how I was raised, uh, I know what happened there and I interact with survivors and other such people. Um, so I don't have to go see the piles of teeth, piles of shoes. You, you understand that, yes. right? But my question to you though is, so you go and you're there for the first time or the second time. How do you just not explode emotionally? Knowing, like you say, following thousands of Jews, um, uh, 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, 1.5 of them being children. How do you actually deal with that on, on an emotional level and just not explode all over the walls? So it's, it's, it's a great question. And, and I think, you know, my perspective on the importance and significance of these types of experiences has changed. And what do I mean by that? There is a beautiful story. It's a rabbinic fable, of course, that centers around um, a synagogue in Krakow called the Isaac Shul. And the Isaac Shul, the story behind the Isaac Shul is actually um, quite remarkable. It's similar to the story of the alchemist, if you've read the book. But um, the abridged version of the story is it's named after a guy named Yitzhak Ben Yaakov, who was a very poor Jew. So automatically we say, well, we don't name things in the Jewish community after poor Jews. Right? Uh, we definitely don't, no. Because, right, you know, how do we know the pyramids were not built by, by the Jews? Because there's no plaque there's on There's no it. plaque on them, right? You know, bricks and mortar donated by Goldberg and Sons. Yeah. Um, so, so why does it bear his name? Well, what happened is he had a dream one night that if he went to a far-off land, he would get a treasure. And the next night, he had the same dream, uh, and he saw the far-off land was Bohemia. And on the third night, it was Prague in the city of Bohemia. And on the fourth night, he saw in his dream the exact place where the treasure. He said, this is a sign from heaven. Yes. So he kissed his wife and his 12 children goodbye, and he walked all the way to Prague. And he saw the bridge, but alas, there was a sentry there soldier so he waited until nighttime he began digging for the treasure and the sentry came back and the sentry said what are you doing and he said well i saw in my dream that this is a place i would dig i would get a treasure i'll gladly share it with you and he looked overtly jewish and the sentry said to him he said you stupid jew he said don't you think i've had a dream every night that if i go to the far off city of krakow and find some jew named yitzhak ben yakov and go into his house and dig underneath his stove i will find a treasure mm -hmm. do you think i would follow such a silly dream do you think I'm so foolish? And upon hearing that, he said, I'm sorry. He covers everything up, runs back to his house, doesn't say hello to his wife or his kids, yanks the stove out of the wall, begins digging, and he finds the treasure, yeah. right? Which he then donates to, to the synagogue, and that's why it bears his name. So the, what is the moral of the story is sometimes what we're looking for is right below our feet. Yes, right? in, our, in our own backyard. Yes. So what I'm saying is you can view this community that we live in, or Israel, from here, and you have a certain perspective. When you view it from Poland, right, and you stand there on the ashes of a community that's all but destroyed, and you say, wow, there's no more vibrant Jewish communities, until you look home and say, wait, there's one in Toronto, yeah. and there's one in Israel. Yeah. And what happened is they didn't disappear. They just were transplanted to other places. And, and Parker Palmer, who was one of my, my educational role models, he's a great American educationist. He wrote a book called uh, Courage to Teach. I've had the opportunity to learn with him on two occasions. 
uh, he's a Quaker, he's not Jewish, but he's still written the, the, the prologue to, to our seminal text from where I work at the Israel, the I Center for Israel Education. Very good. And he said many brilliant things, but, but one of the quotes that I love to use by him is he said, um, when you put on new lenses, you see things that would otherwise have been invisible. Yes. And we don't put on new lenses enough. So forget about seeing the death and the destruction. One of the values of going to Poland is putting on a different set of lenses through which you will look at the world and the Jewish world. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is, you know, um, and the Polish government um, has, has tackled this with much controversy, you know. Um, Poland was not responsible for the Holocaust, and, and they've passed some, some pretty oppressive legislation. You know, it wasn't a Polish Holocaust. These weren't Polish death camps. Yep. And, and, and forget about the ways in which they do it. They're, they're correct. It was a, you know, Nazi Holocaust uh, carried out by Nazis in Poland on Polish soil. So there were Nazi death camps in Poland, and Poland as a nation suffered. Um, and some Polish people were collaborators, and some Polish people were righteous among the nations, and many were bystanders. And, and certainly, you know, uh, several generations after, we can't hold a people accountable for something that happened. It says very clearly in Judaism that we do not hold a child accountable for their parents' sins. Yet, yet there was a lot of anti-Semitism <clears throat> coming from Poles. There was. Both before, was. during, and after the war. No more uh, than you would find in the Ukraine, or in Hungary, or in Canada— or in America, right? Yes. Poland does not have a monopoly on anti-Semitism, sadly. Yeah. Uh, we have it all over the world. So so the issue is, is that a lot of people go to Poland because they were conditioned by their parents or their grandparents to hate Poland and to hate Poles. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that if I bring young people on a trip and one of the things they leave with is hating a nation and its people, then we have completely failed. Because Poland today is a vibrant nation that has millions of amazing people, some of whom I know quite well. And in fact, Israel's single greatest ally over the years in Europe has been Poland. During the second Gulf War, there were Polish crack commando troops stationed in the western oil fields of Iraq protecting Israel from Scud missiles. Mm -hmm. There is tremendous investment in Poland by Israelis uh, buildings of hotels and shopping malls, and and a lot of tourism. I mean, there are there are tens of thousands of, of, of Polish Christian pilgrims who come to Israel. Um, so so to, to to go there with with this notion of hatred, all Poles are anti Semites, um, is is completely absurd and completely counterproductive. I have some very close friends who are Polish, not Jewish, Polish Christians. Mm -hmm. And they're kind and decent and compassionate people who I consider in my tier one group of friends. So when people say all Poles are anti-Semites, I get offended because you're talking about people that I know. And sweeping generalizations serve no positive purpose, in, in my opinion. So it also, trips to Poland, help us heal and help us meet. And Ellie Rubenstein, you know, he started it. I've worked with him um, on it quite a bit. Um, is, is we've tried really hard on these trips is to get these young Jews to meet young Poles mm -hmm. and to build relationships. And the pushback we got at the beginning, I mean, you could only imagine. Yeah, How El dare Ellie, you? Ellie was a guest <clears throat> on High yeah. Radio. He talked about it. How yeah. dare you bring a Jewish kid to Poland and have him meet a Pole? Yes. Right? Yes. And, you know, so so we got to change the way we think. And we got to change, you know, the way that we teach our children because it's not about indoctrinating them anymore. So you've taken uh, probably, what, thousands of kids from Toronto? Yes. Ontario, Canada? All across Canada. Yeah. 
I see the world now in a different sort of way than I saw it five years ago vis-a-vis the Jewish people. I, like most other people, see an increase in anti-Semitism. And I'm concerned. And I also see that our people are not responding in the way that they said they would. You know, we grew up with a very, very important phrase, which was never again. And it, it was really like a powerful phrase, and it essentially meant, well, it meant different things to different people, but by and large, never again. This will never happen to us again. We'll never allow it to happen to other people, but let's stay with us for a second. I don't see that our community is stacked with Jewish activists, certainly not young Jewish activists. I'm not suggesting there's no leadership within our community. There is. I'm not suggesting that there aren't young people who don't step up when required. But I'm talking about those people who are very aggressive about it, who will really go out of their way to make sure that the Jewish people are protected, that the Jewish people uh, have spokespeople, spokesmen, spokeswomen, and that um, they sacrifice the way that let's say previous generations had. My question, bottom line is, and I've asked Ellie this, I've asked other people as well. So March the Living takes kids uh-huh. to, to Poland and to Israel. Birthright takes kids to Israel. I don't see that these kids come back and that they're at the forefront of never again. I just don't see it. Uh-huh. Am I missing something? Do you agree, disagree? Uh, so. So I agree in your assessment. I don't agree in the fact that that's bad. Um, And again, here's where I will sort of offer a dissenting or alternative opinion. Yeah. Anti-Semitism has been around for at least 2,000 years. So it is proven one thing, that like the Jewish people, it has staying power. As long as we're around, there are going to be others who don't want us to be around. Mm -hmm. Period. As Jewish people, we have to learn how to live with that. We have to learn that the reality of life says that there are people out there who want to do us harm or who do not like our existence, who want to talk trash about us. For rational or irrational reasons, it doesn't matter. Okay. However... Those people are still, by any measurement, such a small minority of the world in which we live. And we as a Jewish people have often chosen to focus more on those who seek to destroy us than those who have helped us to survive. Oh, I totally agree with that. And the point I I, want to make, and I can't make it strongly enough, is let's take the BDS movement for yep. as a great example. Just walk us through that for a second, what that is. This is a movement of you know people primarily on the left um, who wa- are suggesting that, that, that people and countries should boycott, divest, and, and levy sanctions against Israel for its inhumane treatment of Palestinian people. Right. Um, and they do it to the exclusion of everybody else. These are not people who are saying we should do the same for Syria or Sudan or Cuba. Only Israel. Israel is the worst human rights offender in the world. So I will be the first to say that Israel, like so many other countries, has human rights violations. Canada 
has human rights violations, as does America, as does every country in the world, democracy or not. And like everybody, I want Israel to do better. Yes. But to single Israel out to the exclusion of everyone else, to say they are the worst defender on the planet, um, you either have to be predisposed to being anti-Semitic or you have to, excuse my French, be a complete moron. Yeah. Because that's the only way that you could come to that conclusion. So the BDS movement, which is, again, predicated on nonsense, I would argue the Jewish community has given them so much free pre PR over the years. The amount of money we've invested in fighting them has just given them a stage. Mm -hmm. Had we ignored them, I don't think they'd be around anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Holocaust deniers, we don't hear much about them anymore because we just ignored them. And most people in the world will hear a guy or a woman saying the Holocaust didn't happen, and their first thought is that person's insane. That person doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, the same way as I'm walking through the halls and there's, you know, the Flat Earth Society. There's a table of guys who want to convince me that the Earth is still flat. I'm not going to engage in a conversation with them because if you think the Earth is still flat today, then you and I have absolutely nothing to talk about. Right? We our, 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 our grip on reality is so completely different. So, so that's one. Two, we hear about all of the anti-Semitism, you know, all the campus stuff, right? So if in North America there are 50 or 100, 100, and that number is grossly exaggerated, 100 hot campuses where campuses are on fire with BDS and, and anti-Jewish sentiment, we can talk about those. Or we can talk about the 5,422 other campuses where this isn't a problem. And it's completely out of proportion, right? The small negativity gets the headlines. And where this became so apparent to me was through an experience I had. Um, I, I remember, or at least I think I remember the Munich massacre, 1972. I was six. Chances are I probably don't remember it. Yeah. Um, but I think I remember it, so it doesn't matter. And I remember Jim McKay, who was a sportscaster, signing off that night saying, you know, seldom are your, your greatest hopes and worst fears ever realized. Today, our worst fears have been realized. They say that two died at the village, nine at the airport. They're all gone. Yeah. And that's how we ended the cast. And, 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 and every time I say it, the hair stands up on my on my on my arm so i become I, I was obsessed with munich i've read almost every book i've seen every movie i yeah. like and you know if there was a jeopardy on munich questions i could probably do quite well um but i'd never actually been there and it's about that perspective piece that i talk about i'm a tactile learner and, and i need to go so i was in europe with my wife and we arranged it to fly home from munich and we spent 24 hours in munich mm -hmm. and my father's a cousin there who's a taxi cab driver so he uh, he picked us up and he said you know wh where do you want to go you have the whole day i can take you to dachau i can take you to the bmw museum oktoberfest hitler's house I need to go to hitler's house per yeah, se that's the first place you um, want to i go. said all those places are great but i said i need to go to the olympic village it's okay so he takes us to the olympic village i go to those residences that were famous on, on tv and i take a million pictures because i'm a you know a visual learner want to recreate the picture and now they're apartments except for the two that has the israelis athletes that are memorialized and then we walked into the center of the park where there was a memorial for the 11 uh, murdered israeli acts, um, uh, athletes and so it was a long uh, granite stone with their names etched in, in Hebrew, quite powerful. And I'm reading the names, and I know every name, and I know every story, and I, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I get to the last name. There's a 12th name there. And it's written in, in English letters. There's a German name, and the name is Anton Fliegenbauer. So I said to myself, who even is that? Mm -hmm. I never heard of this guy. How yeah. is it possible that I, the great expert, don't know who Anton Fliegenbauer is? So I, I, I pieced it together, and... It took me a couple of minutes, but I realized I know who Anton Flingenbauer was. 
he was the guy that until that moment I and everybody else in the world only ever knew as the German policeman. Because during the failed rescue attempt, there was a German policeman, Bavarian policeman, Anton Fliegenbauer, who was killed trying to rescue the Jews. And I thought, how tragic is it that we remember the 11 athletes, we remember Black September, but this German policeman, think about what German police were doing 30 years earlier, who risked his life, and nobody knows his story. Mm-hmm. No one knows about his family. No one even knows his name. I looked him up on, on online. There was like a paragraph written about this guy. And I said, as tragic as the 11 deaths were, his, his death was no more or less tragic, and he should be remembered and memorialized. And that's because we focus our attention on all the negativity. That's the world in which we live. But what about focusing our attention on all those good, kind, and decent people? who have done amazing things so that Jewish people can be accepted into society, so that Jewish people can thrive. So I'm not as concerned about the threat of anti-Semitism. If anti-Semitism crosses my path, if someone behaves to me in an anti-Semitic way, then I am perfectly comfortable to deal with it in a way that I see fit, Um, because it's a behavior. And that behavior as you know, they have the attitude that I can't change their attitude, but I can change behavior. We change behavior all the time. So that's either appropriate or it's inappropriate. But I'm not going to wake up every day, um, you know, uh, with, the, with the sole goal of fighting anti-Semitism. Because my goal of waking up every day is to get young Jewish people okay, let, to love being Jewish and love being a part of it. Very good. Let me reposition my point. Okay. Are there enough participants or past participants from the March of the Living and from Birthright who are involved in roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, uh, tikkun olam, repairing the world in our communities. We all know that there are a vast amount of survivors who are below the poverty level. We all know that there are a lot of shut-ins in our communities Mm -hmm. who never have guests, who never have people come visit them. We all know that there's huge amounts of poverty, not only in the Jewish community, outside of the Jewish community, even in Toronto, a major metropolitan city. Are these kids coming back from the march or from the Israel experience and ensconcing themselves in activities you know, like I said, getting their hands yeah. dirty, really being involved. And I ask you this because I come out of a household where we were thought we were taught empathy at an early age. If somebody was suffering by the side of the road, we would go over and ask them for their welfare. And we had strangers coming into our house. Is this a product or a byproduct of these programs? So the short answer is yes and no. Yes, there is potential. And yes, these people have had a transformative experience that if um, activated or reactivated in the right way could could lead to what you're speaking about. But the no right. is because young people today are very different than you and I were. Mm-hmm. And it's not their fault. It's their parents' fault. The, the kids who are 18, 19, 20 today, their relationship with their parents is similar to what mine was when I was 12 or 14. Right, this notion of independence. So they don't have to stand up and fight for themselves because their parents are doing it for them, which is a great disservice. You've heard the term helicopter parents. You've heard the term, you know, snowplow parents, which are even worse. Parents going to job interviews with their kids. Parents calling professors to contest marks. Parents calling me when I ran Birthright Israel. Parents of a 26-year-old called me to advocate on behalf of their child. My response, which I thought was brilliant, 
<laughs> was let me take down your name and your phone number and I will have my father call you back. <laughs> and they said, why would you have my your father call me back? And I said, because you were calling me about your adult child, so I'm going to have my father call you about his adult child. Uh, did and you really they said, say that? You yes. Really? And they said, well, that would be ridiculous. And I said, that's exactly my point. <laughs> Tell your 26-year-old son to pick up the phone and call me. What was the outcome? The kid, the kid called me. Yeah, I'm sure the parent was standing behind them coaching yeah. them. Did you get your ass kicked for things like that? No. Yeah. No, because I was right. Like, yeah. like this, is, this, is, this is absurd. Yeah, so good. you're not helping your child. So as a result, why would any child want to do, you know, anything that, that you know, well, well, my parents are going to do that for me. We need to give our children independence. We need to stop removing every obstacle in their path because if we don't, they will not know how to remove obstacles. So how does this answer my question? It answers your question that the moments parents let these kids do what they want to do, as crazy an idea as that sounds, I want to go to the to the embassy, in, the Russian embassy in Ottawa and stand in front of it with a sign that says, yet, yet, Soviet, yeah, right? Yeah. Today's parents would be like, are you mad? You won't get into law school if they photograph you doing this. Right. And by the way, right. parents are too busy forcing their kids to take extra courses to get resume building experience, to do all these things to get them into school, right? And empathetic activity is one box. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But shalom, you have too much empathetic activity and not enough getting someone's coffee at Google or Facebook. So it's, it's you know, our, our priorities as parents are completely warped, I think, at the end of the day. And I think we're not letting kids be kids. We're not letting young adults be young adults. And when I came home from York University and said, Dad, they are saying terrible things about Israel on my campus, his response was not to call the head of federation or Canadian Jewish Congress or CJA and say, my son feels unsafe on the campus of York University. His response was, so do something about yeah, right, it. Right. Call your friends and go do something. Like Bernie Farber would say, his father used to say, open up a mouth. Open up a mouth or clench a fist. Yeah. Right? You know, we've become easy targets because there's no repercussions for targeting a Jew. Yeah. Right? So at the end of the day, um, you know, someone who is hell-bent on, on, you know, spewing this anti-Semitic garbage to Jews, you know, give that guy a punch in the mouth. It may not change his views, but it'll certainly change his decision whether he's going to open up a mouth in front of the guy who punched him in the mouth before. And his dental bills. Right, yeah. and his dental bills. So, you know, let's level the playing field. And sometimes, you know, the best way to deal with a bully is to bully them back. Right. Right? You learn how to deal with bullies by being bullied. The problem yeah. is in schools today, everything is bullying. There's no bullying allowed. So a kid is going to be bullied when they're 30 years old in their employment. They're not going to know what it is. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I, I, I think we're kind of, uh, we've, we've evolved into somewhat of a wussy people. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're scared. We're very scared. Well, yeah, and it's all society. Like, you know, everybody, we, we've conditioned children to say, never should you feel offended. And never should you be in a position when you're uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm like, hold on a second. I'm offended and uncomfortable every single day. That's part of life. Mm -hmm. That's part of makes me who I am. And if somebody offends me, I don't have the right to get someone else to make it stop unless it crosses a certain line. Right. That's what discourse and, and conversation in, 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 in democratic societies are about. You don't have to agree with everyone. So listen, man, I love when you get riled up. 
it's not too difficult to do that. Yeah, I saw you in the Austra- in Australia as well yeah. when you were giving that speech. By the end of it, man, you were totally pumped. Yeah, you know when you leave the stage, right, and people flock over to you, and inevitably they did because it was a wonderful yes. speech that you gave, and you're just like pumped. Yeah, right, right, and people say, "Oh, Michael, it's really nice. Do you mind if I get in touch with you?" And you can barely hear what's going on around you. Absolutely, you know that moment, right? Yeah, right, and it takes a while to come down. Right? It absolutely does. And it's like, you know, there's no, you know, every time I speak, yeah. I enter with some degree of nervousness. Yeah, me too. If I so ever I. lose that, then that's when when things are going to go bad. And, you know, about a third of the way in, if I get hit my rhythm, then I'm gold. And, exactly. And I know that's when right. I'm nailing it. And at the end, I'm like nailing it. And I'm like, you know, thank you very much. Fall with my feet. I know I just gave one of the most inspirational, you know, talks you've ever heard. That's right. And I'll try to be humble about it. But inside my head, I'm like, dude, you rock. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel too. And But it's interesting though, if your children were at your speech and they come over to you after you're finished speaking, it's hard to pay the attention to them that they need at that moment, right? Because yeah. you're paying attention to yourself. Yeah, and my daughter um, has often you know, come particularly at synagogue. Like she'll, you know, when my son was too little to come, well, my where wife do you pray by the way? Congregation Hobonim. Okay, wonderful, uh, wonderful synagogue. And so my daughter, from a young age, will will come and she'll listen. And when she was younger, she used to always, you know, say, oh, "Good speeching, Dad. Good yeah. speeching, Dad." Yeah. Um. But but I think she genuinely, you know, enjoys it and and, and hears the message. And you know, she's a fourteen year old teenager, so she would never publicly admit that she's proud of her father. I know, of um, course not. But she doesn't need to publicly admit it because I know that's the way that she. Is. So. What I like to do at the end of an interview is just talk about two or three things which I think our listeners can take out of this conversation. And I, uh, firstly, I want to tell you that I really enjoyed having you as a guest. I, I just, I adore your passion. I enjoy your knowledge very, very much. And uh, you're a thoughtful person um, who's sort of a pioneer still. At, how old are you now? 53? 53. You're still like a pioneer. You're still searching. You're still looking. And I think that people can take that out of this interview. It's very clear that as you evolve through the whole camp system and now you're uh, chairman of the board, are you? Yes. Yeah. That you stuck with it and that you're interested in continually growing within a camp sphere. And I think that's marvelous. And I would suggest very strongly to people, pursue growth, right? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Pursue growth. Pursue growth and learning. And you set know? goals and objectives for yourself. Do you set objectives? Absolutely. So you said you're going to go for your PhD, right? I would like to. Yeah. I would, I would like to. And again, partially because I, I really enjoy the learning process. Partially it will open other doors in, in the academic world for me. Um, and partially because, you know, I have already four degrees. Why not have five? Um, and you know, it, it feeds my ego sort of to, to, to a certain extent. Um, but, but I, I do, I do love learning. Are you home enough? Uh, depends on you to find enough. You know, part of me says if I was home 365 days a year, my wife would have thrown me out a long time she ago. She doesn't want you there And, so I, and I wouldn't blame her. And yeah. before we got married, once we were engaged, I sat her down as her best friend, um, not as her fiance and, and warned her. I said, are you sure you want to go through with this? Well, this you're guy, fidgety. You're this fidgety. guy is not easy. He's not easy. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know. Am I diagnosed ADD? No, but you know, I'm always, I'm always running. I always want to be sort of one step ahead of where I am. Yeah. And, and I have a lot of different interests and a lot of different passions. And I think, you know, that's ultimately what, what led uh, to her attraction to me. And, you know, we decided when our kids were younger that we did not want to have a nanny. 
um, that we wanted our kids to be raised, you know, primarily by parents, or in this case, parent. So she never went back to work. Um, she went back to work full time, but 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 didn't like the lack of time she was spending with the children. So she's now working part time. And when she made that decision, we had a conversation, and I said, "I'm totally fine with you working part time. Yeah, I'm okay with it. It just means I have to work more, which I'm also okay with. But how I work is to travel. I mean, that's how I make my money. That's how you do it. Um, so in my previous job, I was away a lot for a lot longer periods of time. I was away, you know, for 10 days and um, and two weeks at a time. Now, I'm rarely gone two or three nights. You know, I'm home every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, most Mondays, and some combination okay, of Tuesday, so that, Wednesday, that's Thursday. Good. The other thing I think that people can take out of this is courage and bravery. I don't know if you see yourself as such. Generally, people don't. But that being said, you have balls. You're willing to say what's on your mind. Yes. And we both know that there will be people listening to this who want to hear what Michael Soberman has to say because you are a leader in the Jewish community. And uh, there's contentious things that you say that are not in line with the mainstream and don't work for everybody, some very important people. So kudos to you for that. Thank you. And I think that people need to step up, say what's on their mind, talk about things that are out of sync with the way that they should be. And, uh, and I would suggest really strongly that you pick your battles. Uh, I'm sure at this point in your life, you're often saying to yourself, yes. okay, listen, I'm just not going to go for that. I'm yeah. not, not going to get involved with that. But there are other things you just cannot let pass, right? Mm -hmm. So those are a couple of things that our listeners can take out of this interview. And once again, Michael, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I, so, really, I really enjoyed it. So could I say one last closing? Yeah, please, please. Point. So the first thing is, is make sure that you tell our mutual friend, Ellie Rubenstein, that, that as good as he was, I was better. Um, I will tell him that. Because Don't I'm worry. not very competitive. Um, <laughs> but, but, but two things I would say. I have a great, uh, a good colleague and mentor. His name is Professor Barry Hazan, based in Chicago. Um, and, and he said, you know, the, the only thing better than a beautiful answer is a beautiful question. Yeah. Good. So at the end of the day, you know, our conversation here, I hope, is not about me giving answers and everyone say, well, that's resolved now. But I want people to have questions. I want people to walk away sort of thinking or rethinking and reframing and, and, and come back and say, well, you know, well, what do you mean by that? Because yeah. that's how education actually takes place. Right. And I would say, you know, uh, several years ago, I came in contact um, with, a, with a quote that, that I've really sort of tried to, to, to put front and center when trying to describe what it is I do and, and of course, what the motivating factors are. And it's a quote, it, its origin is, is somewhat questionable. It either comes from a Native American proverb or Ralph Waldo Emerson. Both seem to take credit for it. Yeah, and that's reasonable if it yes. comes from either of them. Yes, and it says that we do not inherit the world from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Nice. So that's, again, a different lens and a different perspective. So, yes, my children, but, but figuratively the children, is that, you know, I see my obligation as trying to, you know, take what is theirs and, and to, to make it slightly less broken and slightly more whole um, and give it back to them in, in a state that wasn't one of disrepair, which is, one could argue, how we got the world. Mm -hmm. and, and let's, you know, let's not progressively break the world, but let's progressively fix it. See, and that extends to everything that's uh, at the forefront of the news today. I thought you were going to say, when you started talking about the question, I thought you were going to say, if Avram had not asked such good questions, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, there's no way this interview would Absolutely. have happened. Absolutely. Your questions are, are and second And my response, I had a response in my head already. You want to know what it was? Sure. My, my response was, you know, the interviewer is ultimately, if they're doing a good job, is supposed to become invisible, more or less. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the humility and simsum that we spoke about. Something that perhaps both of us, you know, are getting better at, but we still have a ways a to go. A little bit of false humility on my yeah, part. exactly. Anyways, thank you again.
My pleasure. Uh, you've Thank been you for listening. Me. Yeah, it was lovely. It was lovely. You've been listening to Hot Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. Do you like that? Yeah, I like the it. The show that schmoozes. Yeah. And God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the hat In the hat Put it all in the hat